0: Hey, welcome to Grace. Uh, If you have your Bibles, uh, grab them at this point and turn with me to the book of Genesis. We're going to be starting off and uh, covering Genesis chapter 7. We're in part 4 of our uh, series on Noah, and uh, I've entitled this sermon, Casualty, as uh, today the flood is going to come. And uh, we're going to see the casualty of that, and yet God's grace in the midst of that judgment as well. So Genesis chapter 7, I trust that you are there, close to it. Uh, Grab the Bible and the pew back in front of you if you don't have access to your own. And uh, most of the text should be up on the screen. Again, Genesis chapter 7. Let's pray one more time, and we'll dive right in. Father, help us, be with us this this morning uh, as we continue to look at the life of this man who indeed was righteous. Uh, he had the righteousness of Christ that was given to him through his faith in, in, in you, and then he acted righteously. And because of that, you preserved both he and his family, and through your grace to him, we today are alive. Amen. Uh, Humanity continues because of your grace to Noah in the midst of a just judgment that we're going to see today in the flood. Thank you for all that we've learned and all that we've seen. Thank you for the opportunity to worship you in song and in gift and in giving everything that we have for everything is yours. So would you be with us? Would you guard my lips that I might speak that, what, uh, that, that which is truthful and that you would encourage us uh, from this story of the life of Noah today? Father, may we realize that you have, in your grace, provided a means of escape of any judgment that you might bring and that your judgment is always just, but it's inescapable. So we must cling to that which you provide. We must, we must cling to your salvation that you have provided to preserve us from your judgment. Thank you that you have done that in Jesus, and it's in his name that we pray it. And all of God's people said, Amen. I want to begin by a story that I ran across this week. There was a woman who worked uh, for the IRS, and she worked in a branch there in Utah. And she had the, uh, well, rather unwelcome job of communicating and talking with delinquent taxpayers. And so as the story goes, one day she was after a man who was living uh, in remote Alaska. And so she started her day to find and get a hold of this man. She called uh, the branch there in Anchorage trying to get a hold of him and she was eventually patched through to an operator uh, in the far-off Aleutian Islands, where the man lived. Two hours later, uh, the operator finally found the taxpayer's home number. So she dialed the number, and from there, he wasn't even home. She had to be patched through to uh, his ship, uh, which was, he was a fisherman. So he was out at sea, and he was fishing, and finally she was able to talk to this man who was uh, a bit behind on his taxes. Uh, So she gets on the phone, and she identifies herself, as uh, being from the IRS, based in Utah, and uh, she needed to talk to him because of some of his delinquent taxes. And as the story goes, there was a long pause on the other end after she identified herself as being with the IRS, and over the static, somewhere in the northern Pacific, came these words, Ha-ha, come and get me. I hope that that's not the strategy you take with your taxes, right? Uh, But you don't have the luxury of living in Alaska, either. You know, I think a lot of times, uh, people like this tax dodger, we make the mistake of thinking that God's patience, his delay of ultimate judgment, means that it will never take place, that we can continue on in our sin, in our rebellion, in our rejection of Christ without consequence. While some people may be able to dodge the IRS, at least for a time period, in Genesis chapter 7 today, we're going to learn that there is no dodging God, that there is no getting away with sin, that there is no dodging when God's day of reckoning happens. So I hope you have your Bibles open because we're going to work our way through chapter 7. And chapter 7 has essentially two parts. So if you're taking notes, jot these uh, couple things down. In verses 1 through 16, we see uh, freedom from the flood. That is, Noah and his family will, will, will receive freedom from the flood. And it's essentially about them escaping the flood by getting on the ark. And then the second half of the chapter, verses 17 through 24, we see the fallout. We see the fallout of the flood. That is, the extinction and the devastation that's going to come. And from these two sections, we get one main point. And so if you're taking notes, jot this down. This is the main point in my humble estimation of Genesis chapter 7. We see the freedom from the flood and the fallout from the flood. And these two sections combine to give us one main truth, one unified lesson. And it's this. We must take the means of escape that God has provided because God's judgment is inescapable. That is, we must take the avenue of salvation that God has provided of escaping His judgment because His His judgment is sure. It is inescapable. It is unavoidable. So we must cling to this means of escape. And that's exactly what Noah and his family are going to do. So let's begin with verses 1 through 16, where we find Noah and his family finding freedom from the flood. Freedom from the flood, and we get our first half of this truth. We must take the means of escape that God has provided. So there are two sections to this section. Uh, we find Noah and his family fi- finding freedom from the, from the flood and essentially two sections, right? So in verses 1 through 4, God is essentially going to command Noah and the animals to get on the ark. He's going to say, now is the time, get on the ark, because the flood, he's going to make a promise. He's going to say, the flood is going to come in seven days. So that's basically, it's basically the first half. God's going to say, it's coming, time to get on, right? And then in verses 5 through 16, we're going to see Noah and the animals be obedient to God. So God's going to say, get on the boat. And then we're going to see them get on the boat. But the second section, verses 5 through 16, When you just read it through casually, it's kind of confusing. It sounds somewhat repetitive because what we get is in verses 5 through 10, we get the general story of Noah's obedience. That is, the author is going to tell us, generally speaking, this is what happened. This is how Noah and the animals got on. And then in verses 11 through 16, we get a more detailed description. So, generally, this is what happened. And then. The author is going to fill us in. Think Genesis 1 and 2. If you're familiar with that, that's exactly what the author does. In Genesis 1, we get a general description of creation. And then in Genesis 2, we get a more detailed description. So I just want to give you a heads up because it can be kind of confusing. This is kind of how I think of it. Um, It's the same story of Noah's obedience. But as you go throughout the story, you get more and more detail. But it's the same story. So how many of you, like myself, especially during the summertime, Enjoy a good ice cream cone. Any takers? Maybe we could go to Dairy Queen. Yeah, maybe we can go to Dairy Queen after, lunch, after church, right? Uh, a good ice cream cone in the summer is wonderful. And uh, here's the thing. Imagine an ice cream cone, right? There's the cone, of course, and then there's the ice cream, the base of the ice cream. And what happens as you move up the cone, right? It, you know, most of the time it swirls so that the top is very small and thin. Uh, if you're normal, like me, you eat the ice cream cone from the top down, Right? You start at the top, where there's least ice cream, and as you go down the ice cream cone, you get more and more ice cream, right? It's the same ice cream cone that you're eating, but at the very beginning, you get less, and as you go on, you get more. So as you read this, this description of Noah's obedience, think, God's going to tell us about Noah's obedience. Generally speaking, it's the top of the ice cream cone. And as you go down the story, you're going to get more yummy details, okay? So let's start off in chapter 7, verse 1 where we find freedom from the flood. God is going to say, it's time to get on board. He's going to command Noah and his family and the animals to get on, along with the promise that the flood is coming. Verses 1 through 7. Let's read that together. The Lord then said to Noah, Get into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of every kind of clean animal, a male and its mate, and one pair of every kind of uncleaned animal, uh, male and its mate, and also seven pairs of every kind of bird, male and female, to keep their various kinds alive throughout the earth. Seven days from now I will send rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights, and I will wipe from the face of the earth every living creature that I have made. And so this is, this is uh, the call, right? He's saying, listen. Uh, it's time. This is time for you to get on. We get some some more details, right? We find out that there are actually seven pairs of what the Bible describes as clean animals. That is, they can be eaten or sacrificed. There are one pair of unclean animals and then seven pairs of birds. So we get a little more detail as to what's happening, but you get the jest, right? Get on board. Bring the animals because the flood is coming. It's a, it's a seven-day warning that God is given. Uh, if you uh, are a football fan, in the NFL in particular, uh, at the end of every game, uh, when the clock strikes two, two minutes, what happens? They call it the two-minute what? Warning, the two-minute warning. And, and that's to let the teams know, hey, listen, I'm going to give you a free timeout because something cataclysmic is going to happen. The game's going to be over in two minutes, and you're going to win or you're going to lose, right? It's a two-minute warning. It's cataclysmic if you lose, right? Two-minute warning. In my household, we have generally a five-minute warning. So what we're in the habit of doing is is maybe the kids are outside and it's almost dinner time. So what do we do? Kids, in five minutes, it's going to be time to come inside because that can be cataclysmic for kids, right? Or the five-minute bedtime warning. Kids, in five minutes, bedtime's coming, right? Also cataclysmic. There's going to be a change. That's what God's doing. He's giving a seven-minute warning. Excuse me, a a seven-day warning. So we begin with the command. Next of all, we we begin with the ice cream cone, right? We start at the top of the ice cream cone, and we get the general description in verses 5 through 10 of Noah's obedience. So let's read that together, verses 5 through 10. And Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the floodwaters came on the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives entered the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Pairs of clean and unclean animals, of birds, and of all creatures that move along the ground, male and female, came to Noah and entered the ark, as God had commanded Noah. And after the seven days, the flood waters came on the earth. So this is the top of the ice cream cone, right? It's a description of, of Noah's obedience and the animal's obedience to get on board. And as we go throughout the passage, we get more and more details about how this happened. First of all, we find out that the flood began when Noah was roughly 600 years old. So why is that important? Remember last time we were told how old Noah was. It was when, uh, in, back in Genesis chapter 5, I believe, at the end. And it, it, we found out that Noah began to have kids at the age of 500, Let that sink in a little bit. He began to have kids at the age of 500. Uh, And so how long, roughly, did Noah build the ark? We think about 100 years, right? And so just just think about this. He's been building and working day after day, uh, month after month, right, for roughly 100 years. And now, finally, the time has come. When Noah was 600, the flood began. Also, we find out some details about who is actually going to be on the ark. Because before, we were told, well, Noah and his family. Well, who did, that, who, who did that entail? Well, now we find out it includes his wife, it includes his three sons, and who else? The three daughters-in-law, right? That's who God specified was going to be on the ark. We also find out an interesting tidbit that Larry shared, and that is that the, the animals actually came to Noah and seemingly entered the ark by God's command. So it's not only natural, but it's supernatural. God is bringing the animals on board. And then as promised, the flood came, right? In seven days, the flood came. So that's that's the top of the ice cream cone. Let's get to the the bottom part of the ice cream cone, and we're going to find out a few more details about Noah's obedience. So let's read verses 11 through 16. Verse 11, In the 600th year of Noah's life, on the 17th day of the second month, On that day, all of the springs of the great deep burst forth, and the floodgates of the heavens were opened, and rain fell on the earth forty days and forty nights. On that very day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, together with his wife and the wives of his three sons, entered the ark. They had with them every wild animal according to its kind, all livestock according to their kinds, every creature that moves along the ground according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, everything with wings. Pairs of all creatures that have the breath of life in them came to Noah and entered the ark. The animals going in were male and female of every living thing as God had commanded Noah. Then, notice these words, then the Lord Did what? Shut him in. The Lord shut him in. So now we find out even more details about how this happened. We find out in verses 11 and verse 13, both the specific start date of the flood, as well as the start date in which Noah and the animals and his family entered. Next week, we're going to see why that's important, because there are markers throughout the story, during this year, during this month, so that we know exactly how long the flood lasted. More on that to come. But we have the start date of the flood and the day that they entered into the ark. Also notice, we find out about the source of the flood. We talked about this a little bit with Larry, but we find out that the source of the flood actually came from two places. Most of us, when we think about Noah and the flood, think, well, it rained for how many days and nights? Forty, right? It rained for 40 days and 40 nights. And most of us think, well, that's where, that's where the flood came from, exclusively. And while it did come from that in part, did you notice that there was a second source? It came from above in the rain, but where else did it come from? It came from below, right? As Larry was talking about, it came from below. We don't know exactly what happened, but apparently there were subterranean waters under the earth that sprung forth like huge geysers to flood the earth. So it's raining from above, it's flooding from below we find out that God's supernatural shutting of the door sealed both the fates of those inside the ark and those outside the ark. To me, it's, it's telling that that's how this little section ends. And the Lord shut them in. The Lord shut them in. And so in my mind, I think, up until that point, it was, it was free. People could get on the ark. Noah and his family could get on the ark. Others could get on the ark. It, it was an open invitation. But when the flood came, that was it. The invitation was over. When the flood came, it sealed the salvation of Noah and his family and it sealed the damnation of everyone else who refused the means of escape that God had provided. So in this little section, we see freedom from the flood. Noah and the animals find freedom from the flood. And it reminds us of the first half of our truth, right? We must take the means of escape that God has provided. Well, why? Why must we take the means of escape that God has provided? Well, to answer that question, we need to continue reading in the text. Because in verses 17 through 24, we move from the freedom from the flood to the fallout from the flood. We move from the freedom, the salvation, to the damnation, to the casualty, the fallout. We must take the means of escape that God has provided. Why? Because God's judgment is inescapable. It's inescapable. And that's what verses 17 through 24 show us. This little section basically has two parts. To begin with, in verses 17 through 20, we see the extent. That is, we see the extent of the flood. How bad was it, right? And then the section ends with the extinction that the extent of the flood caused. So let's begin then by looking at the extent of the flood in verses 17 through 20. Let's read it together. For 40 days, the flood kept coming on the earth. And as the waters increased, they lifted the ark high above the earth. Is that not a picture of grace? As the waters rise, so does the ark, right? Verse 18, the waters rose "...and greatly increased on the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. They rose greatly on the earth, and all the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered. The waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than 15 cubits." So here in this little section, we see the extent of this flood, right? The big question, and we've addressed it already in part, the big question that people wrestle with is, is this a, a universal flood? I mean, did it, did it cover literally all the earth, or was it just kind of some kind of local regional flood? Well, if we just take the Bible at its word, and when we take this little section at its word, we find out that it was, a, indeed a global flood. I want to I point out for you just really quickly the biblical evidence for a universal flood. So just real quick, number one, the purpose of the flood shows that it was universal. So what was the purpose of the flood? It was to kill off every living being, both mankind and animals. And so if you're going to do that on all the earth, you need a global flood, right? Makes sense. Second, the, the need for an ark. If the, flood, if the flood was just local, you could escape it by just moving to the next region, Right? You can just escape it. You don't need the ark. Number three, the inclusion of every type of animal. If God wanted to and to kill off every kind of animal in the whole world, it would make sense to me that you would need a flood to be of global proportions. Number four, the size of the ark. Why build such a large ark if it's just a local flood? If it's just a little bit of water, why do you need such a huge ark? Right? Well, because it was a global flood. Number five, the universal terms used in the story. As you read the story, the language is inclusive. All life was destroyed. All the mountains were covered, and all the earth was covered in water. If you read it plainly, it just it seems to be that it was global. Uh, whatever number I'm on, five or six, the duration of the flood. Roughly the flood uh, was about seven hundred, excuse me, three hundred and seventy one days according to my calculations. Three hundred and seventy one days was the duration. And If it was just a regional flood, it wouldn't take that long for all that water to abate, right? It was a global flood. Here's some that are really compelling to me. We're going to read this in a little bit. But Peter, in 2 Peter 3, likens the destruction of the earth in the global flood to the future global destruction of both the heavens and the earth with fire. In other words, he's going to argue, just like then the whole world was destroyed, God's going to do it again. That makes sense to me, and it's hard to understand that if it's not a global flood. And maybe lastly, and maybe most significantly, the faithfulness of God is on the line here. Because remember, we're going to get to it in a week or two. What happens when the flood is over, right? They're, they're resting there, and they get out. We, Larry mentioned it. God said, I'm going to make a covenant with you. And what was that agreement? I'm not ever going to flood the earth like this again. Remember that? And then he set the, the pretty rainbow as a sign or a symbol of the covenant. So let me ask you, folks, if the, if the flood was just local, and that's what the text intended, is God a liar? Did, did God mean what he said when he said he wouldn't do this again? Or was it a global flood, and God's promise is good, and he's faithful? To me, that's most compelling. So we've seen the the extent of the flood. Verses 21 through 24, the text, it ends kind of grimly with the extinction, the utter devastation that this flood caused. Verses 21 through 24. Every living thing that moved on the land perished. Birds, livestock, wild animals, all the creatures that swarm over the earth, and all mankind Everything on dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils died. Every living thing on the face of the Earth was wiped out. people and animals and creatures that move along the ground, and the birds were wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left, and those with him in the ark. the flood waters the waters flooded the Earth for 150 days. And so we see the extinction. So folks, what is this text? Telling us, why must we take the means of escape that God has provided? It's because God's judgment is inescapable. I want to close our time by reading a few texts. What does it matter? We've seen the freedom from the fall. We've seen the fallout from the flood. I want to end our time this morning by looking at the function of the flood. That is, what is that supposed to speak to me and you today? I mean, we can talk about this as history, and it is history. So what's the function of the flood in my life and in, and in your life? Who live in this century, in this town, what's the function of the flood? Well, a couple, a couple scriptures speak to this. And the first is from the lips of Jesus himself. Jesus talks about that when he returns to the earth, people will be acting like they did before the flood came. So he likens the flood to the destruction and the judgment that will happen at His return. Notice Luke 17, 26-27. Jesus says this, Just as it was in the days of Noah, so also it will be in the days of the Son of Man. Well, well, how was it? Verse 27, People were eating, drinking, marrying, and being given in marriage up to the day that Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. What is, what is Jesus saying? He's saying that there's going to come a day when I return to this earth to judge the earth just like I did in the flood. And people are going to act up until that day just like they did with Noah. People were just living life as if there was no judgment, right? Just think about this. There's a huge ark sitting there wherever Noah is. And he's a preacher of righteousness, the Bible tells us. So he's telling them there is a flood coming. There is destruction There is death that is imminent, and there is one way of escape. And here it is. And what were they doing? What were they doing the day that the rain started to pitter-patter? And what were they doing the day that the subterranean earth started bursting forth like Mount St. Helens? What were they doing? They were getting married. They were just eating, just like it was any other day. They were drinking, just like it was any other day. Folks, what were they doing? They're just living life as if there is no judgment. And Jesus says, When I come back, and it could be in our generation, some of us will be living life just like that. Out of sight, out of mind. What does Peter say? 2 Peter 3 Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, Where is this, quote, coming? He promised, speaking of Jesus, that Jesus promised to come back. And they're scoffing. They're saying, where is it? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation, right? Hey, nothing's changed. It's a, tomorrow's a new day. I'm just going to go to work just like I did. Nothing's changed. Verse 5. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being, creation, and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. Referring to what? Noah's flood. God created the earth with waters. He destroyed the earth with waters, is what Peter is saying. Verse 7 By the same word, that is by God's same decree, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. What is Peter saying? that there is a day that is coming when Christ literally returns to the earth and as a part of that, there's going to be judgment for those who don't believe, for those who don't take the means of escape from this judgment. He's saying there's a day that's going to come and instead of being destroyed by water, how is the earth going to be destroyed? By fire. So, what is the function Of the flood, let me end by this quotation. One pastor by the name of Cole says it this way, and I couldn't say it any.